0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Megan Gilmore. Welcome to Connecting Disability on AMI-audio. I am super excited to have you with me today. Today on the show, we are talking about what can be the longest and the most complicated relationship in families, and that's the sibling relationship. We are joined by two sisters, Holly and Amy Mathers. Holly is a registered psychotherapist, and Amy is a very passionate advocate for Canadian teen fiction. But today, they are here to tell me about how Amy's disability has impacted their life, and how they were able to go from just being sisters to also being friends. Uh, and just to note, Amy is a psychotherapist, so there were times where this did feel like therapy. Anyways, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Holly and Amy, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. You know, we've had some guests on this show that I've known for years, but we're just getting to know each other. We're just getting to become friends. So first, I just want to have the two of you introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, that type of thing. Amy, why don't you start with that?
0: I am the younger one, but I'm going first because I'm the one that shook everything up. I was born with a genetic metabolic muscular dystrophy called glycogen storage disease type 3a. What it means essentially is that in my body, I'm missing the enzyme that can pull out stored sugar or glycogen and use it for energy. That means that when I eat something that's high in sugar or glycogen and I don't use it all right away, if it gets stored, then it's not coming back out again. When I was a kid, that meant that my liver was really big. I couldn't really walk that well without a walker. I had to have a liver transplant when I was five years old because my liver was in failure. Over time, it meant that my muscles got weaker and weaker And also, I had a form of restrictive cardiomyopathy, so my heart was pretty big, and it was just slowing down, and I went into heart failure when I was about 23, and then I ended up getting a heart transplant when I was 27. I was lucky for that, but then with glycogen storage disease, it's kind of recognized that when you hit your 30s and your 40s, that's when the muscular dystrophy part really kicks in After my heart transplant, about a couple years later, I really had to start relying on my walker. In 2012, I just switched to using an electric wheelchair. I can no longer walk on my own.
1: Anything else you'd want to say about about yourself?
0: Oh, um, I guess, personally speaking, I mean, I know a lot about the medical stuff, so that just comes out, but my personal interests are promoting Canadian teen fiction. I love it so much that in 2014, I did a marathon where I read and reviewed a Canadian teen fiction book a day for the entire year. The purpose of that was to start an award for Canadian Teen Authors that's given out by the Canadian Children's Book Centre on a yearly basis. It actually got named after me, which was pretty awesome. It's called the Amy Mathers Teen Book Award. It's been going on for eight years now.
1: Wow. So, Amy, now I am super tempted to make this whole podcast about teen novels. So, we might have to have you back on the show for that at some point. Holly, why don't you tell
2: us a bit about yourself? Mine doesn't seem as exciting after Amy's. <laughs> I'm Amy's older sister. I'm two years older and I'm a registered psychotherapist. Amy and I have teamed up on a few different projects over the years that are related to health and illness issues in the family, things like that. That has been a pretty cool thing that we've been able to work on together. I've also been involved in some young care and sibling movements of trying to have more resources available and meet the needs of the whole family. When there's someone who has a disability or an illness, if we're talking about personal interests. I like playing board games and I have two kids that I like to spend time with and I'm into music. So lots of different things.
0: And where do the two of you live? We both live in Kitchener, actually. It wasn't always the case. We moved around a lot as kids and then Holly moved to Waterloo and then Kitchener first and then then I moved to Kitchener to follow her and be around the kids.
1: hood is the best. I agree. So Holly, you touched on this a bit. Like the two of you have been involved in different projects to help the whole family when somebody has an illness or a disability. And th- that's why we have the two of you on today is to talk about the sibling relationship and disability. So why is it important for the two of you to tell your story publicly?
0: Well, it is actually something we've been doing for a while in different ways. I think this is more concentrated, though, where we're actually examining our sibling relationship. When we talked about the questions that you presented us with, we were just considering what made our relationship work when there are so many reasons why it could have gone very badly.
1: Let's just springboard off of that and and dive in. I just want to start by picking up what you you just said there um amy about how like your relationship works how would you describe your relationship right now what about it makes you say that it works
0: I want to be clear that my mother does my physical caregiving, but my sister is the one who helps me mentally and also she's very committed to finding ways to help me do what I want to do. I think our relationship really works because we both see each other as whole people for one. And the second thing is that we both have respect for the things we shared during our childhood together, but also the things that were different for each of us based on having and dealing with terminal, life-threatening, acute
2: and chronic illness, as well as disability. I think that we're also both have been really passionate about understanding our experiences and looking at them from a bigger perspective. So that's where we've really put a lot of thought into how these things play out in families and the different experiences of each person in a family. And then through those reflections, we've we've wanted to do something with it. Like we've wanted to share it in different ways with people or communities or others dealing with these things. Because often a lot of these things aren't talked about enough. And some people in families are can be very invisible. Sometimes that's the case with siblings. We really kind of felt compelled sometimes to confront that and put out resources and talk about it.
1: Right. So uh, you have mentioned the experiences of your childhood and what the sibling dynamic was like then. What was it like when you were growing up and how, how did it maybe change throughout your childhood?
2: I think that there are a lot of ways that these things play out in a family. And I think that ultimately there aren't enough resources within the family to meet all of the needs because there are these exceptional needs happening. I think for siblings, that's why sometimes there's sort of that feeling of invisibility, right? Because how do you ever see your needs as important enough as your sibling who has a life threatening illness and acute needs? If you're comparing, which you do when you're next to each other growing up in a family, you never feel like yours are going to be important enough, but they're still legitimate legitimate needs. The thing for siblings is that that's the only experience you have. I was two when Amy was born. I don't remember before Amy time. That's your normal. You don't have any comparison to think, oh yeah, I still have legitimate things and what I want matters. Like You just don't even see that. So it's a different kind of developmental experience. As we got older, I think it changed in terms of feeling like there was a protective role with Amy or kind of needing to try to help make her life better since I was the one who didn't have those things to deal with. Then I think as we became adults it shifted again and that's where like amy said we were able to get to a point that may or may not have been possible in different circumstances where we could become friends i think a lot of that is because amy was able to see my experience i'd say she's one of the people that cares the most about what those times were like for me and the sibling experience and she has this unique view of being there even though she was having her own separate experience she also can understand my experience that kind of mutual support is really important to me and is a reason I value our relationship so much.
0: But don't get us wrong. When we were kids, I was I was definitely an aggravator for our sibling relationship. Yes, we could argue that I was focused on just surviving, but also I did use the role of the youngest and the sick one to get my way at times.
2: Crying under the table to avoid emptying the dishwasher, loading the dishwasher, and yeah. then making mom and dad think I was doing something awful to you.
0: Which was easy, <laughs> right? Because I was already ill. It wasn't but thankfully we were able to get through that yeah it is a really interesting
1: dynamic so I'm also the youngest and I am the disabled sibling in the family um legally blind my parents drilled it into me as much as they could that I was not supposed to use this as an excuse but yeah there are definitely times where I am sure I played those two cards simultaneously it was harder to dupe my parents but like extended family they're not in your house every day (laughs) Yeah, I do remember times when my my brother or sister would pull me aside and be like, don't say or do these things around this relative because we know that they'll give you what you want. And that means we're not going to get something.
0: That's what's good about siblings, right? I think they're the ones that are able to see the person who has a disability or illness the best. Mm. Because you grew up together, so they know when you're pulling one over on people and what you can do and what you actually can't do. I think they're really important because they help you not turn into an incredible (laughs) brat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well said, well said. I do know, though, I've noticed it kind of shift as an adult where once uh, years ago, my sister used to have us all over at, at in our family's house for like Easter. We do Easter egg hunts. And we'd be teamed up. And we all had our different color of egg. And my team, we had like bright yellow eggs so that I could see them easier. But my sister had her neighbor set the eggs out. And she was like, okay, Megan. So I told my neighbor that like you can't see. So she put all the eggs in easier spots so that our team can win. And my mom was like, you can't do that? That's terrible. And I was like, mom, I want to win the game, okay? Like, let's... (laughs) Working with what we have. Obviously, like, the two of you have done a lot of work on your relationship, a lot of time, like, looking at it. Amy, you mentioned that you moved intentionally to be closer to Holly. How did that decision come to be?
0: Well, it actually was kind of fortuitous because... My sister Holly got married to a wonderful man named John, and his condo became available. And it's not specifically accessible, but it has kind of wider doorways, and it's it was easy for me to get around in with my wheelchair. So my parents decided to invest and buy it from his parents, and then I started living here and paying an amount every month it was amazing. I'm just eight minutes down the road from Holly.
2: And then after that our parents moved here too and they're about eight minutes the other way from where yeah. I live. So you're kind of like
1: in the center. You're the, the one that pulls everyone together, I guess.
2: Yeah, Holly's the hub. Right.
1: That's pretty great. You talked about your relationship in the past, you talked about it in the present. I was just wondering like what are the conversations that you have around your family relationships in, in the future?
0: Well, as I said, at the moment, my mother is my physical caregiver. But even in the future, if that should change, I don't anticipate Holly becoming my physical caregiver. I think instead I would have that provided by a service. But we have talked about possibly living together in the future. I think that's the main thing. What would you say, Holly?
2: And then I would say the things you already talked about probably continuing on, right, where we sort of check in periodically anyway about what is on your radar, what do you kind of want in your life, and then what support do you need to figure that out, how do you get to those things. So I think that would just continue but look different depending on what you need and what you want. Right. Right. I would agree.
1: So that brings up a point that I know has come up in a lot of advocacy around uh like sibling caregivers and, and other family caregivers, uh, which is about like how much information is available for siblings when they're trying to help their sibling who has the disability with things like life planning and finances and, and that sort of thing. So Amy like how how involved is Holly in terms of conversations about like your financial future or stuff like that?
0: It is- is something that we do discuss from time to time, I would say. Coincidentally, we're both planning to attend a webinar that's aimed at siblings finding financial opportunities for their disabled siblings. So that should be informative. Am I missing anything?
2: No, I think Siblings Canada is a big force that's trying to have more available to siblings. So they're doing more webinars, like Amy's mentioning, about these specific topics that are relevant for planning. Microboards Ontario is another organization that has been doing more webinars and trying to increase awareness of how microboards can be a really useful future planning tool for people with disabilities. And then Siblings Canada is also a part of providing ACT groups, so acceptance commitment training groups for adult siblings, which are really terrific because they're focused on the needs of the sibling and the mm-hmm. sibling's wellness and not just how do you better support your sibling who has a disability. That's been a gap often over the years of not having enough focused on sibling wellness and mental health directly.
1: Polly, uh, you mentioned a couple things that I just want to follow up on. First, what is a micro board?
2: A microboard is a board that people set up where the person who has a disability is usually a part of the board and I think the head of the board, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, Amy, and then they recruit people who are invested in that person, care about their well-being to be a part of the board. So that could be family, could be friends, could be community members, doesn't have to be people that are already close to the person, sort of anyone who interested and willing and then the board is there to pretty much support anything that person wants for their life so the person sets their own goals their own challenges that they need support with and then the board is there to help them do that so sometimes it's social things sometimes members of the board will go and cook with them once a week or another person on the board will help them manage their psw care or another person on the board will help them with their finances i don't know if there's anything you want to add to that amy
0: Well, I don't have one myself. But from what I've heard of it, yes, I think it's aimed at putting the person who has a disability or illness in control, and then providing them with the support to be able to follow through on what they want to do.
2: The other thing that's pretty great asset about them, I think, is that when you have those issues about future care, and if parents are primary support, and they're not going to be around forever, having a plan for that, not having some emergency happen, having a board gives a lot more stability for the person with the disability over time because their board will continue. So if someone needs to leave the board, then they can have someone else join the board.
1: And then Holly, you also mentioned the the ACT training and the need for siblings to be cared for as the people that they are and their needs. So I'm curious for you, like, was there a connection between you being Amy's sibling and
2: then your career path? For sure. It's really common for siblings to end up in related or caring professions. So when we get together as siblings, Groups, so many work in disability services or therapy, PSW work, healthcare. Yeah, it's really, really common. And I think because you just get this awareness and training your entire life it's so innate. Like it it just ends up, I think, being such a, a natural connection to go into a caring profession, which I think can be a real positive. For me, I really love my career and I find it very rewarding, my work. It also can be a challenge though, right? Because siblings can have more mental health issues and challenges. So if you're overloaded with caregiving, you know, that can be a challenge too. So definitely that's another reason why siblings need their own support. Holly, you mentioned
1: some of the challenges that can come with being the sibling and also working in a caregiving role. So I just wanted to have the two of you reflect on that part like what's been some of the more difficult aspects of your sibling relationship
2: i think for me uh, some of the hardest times have been when amy's been in more acute organ failure I'm kind of right there with a seat next to her seeing the decline of things until she's gone, like, especially with her heart, getting like worse and worse and worse until she got to the point of being able to have the transplant and then got the transplant. So some of those times are really tough just because it feels like you can feel powerless and there's not a lot you can do. And this is a person that you love that you're watching go through this. I mean, that's when we ended up developing one of our resources that was kind of born out of Amy's needs for organization. And well, you could talk about it too, but like caring for yourself. And meeting your needs
0: yes we ended up developing something we called the phoenix pages and it was just because i was overloaded with the amount of doctor's appointments i had to have and the new medications that were coming into my life for heart failure and things like that and so we finally found a way to condense it all into one binder that would be accessible not just to me but to the people around me and that we also try to include things like, okay, if I'm feeling this way, I can call this person for support or this is the doctor I need to talk to for this or... um we get
2: accessible places that meet my needs, which applies yes. to people in a lot of different circumstances, right? If you have Crohn's, you want to go to places that have accessible washrooms that you're going to feel comfortable in if you need them. If you have diabetes, you need to make sure you have snacks available and you have your insulin there so having options instead of feeling like well I just can't do anything because of these issues
0: it's really helped that Holly and I are both creative people we both enjoy thinking outside of the box because there are a lot of limitations when you have a disability but that doesn't mean you can't necessarily do what you want to do
1: yeah and Amy Amy, what's been some of the harder parts of the sibling relationship for you
0: I think probably the hardest part was when Holly ended up moving out to go to Waterloo. We were very used to being together, and so that was definitely a shock for me. But it just ended up allowing our relationship to grow in different ways, which turned out to be a huge plus, I Mm. thought.
1: How did it grow? Because that is a really tough transition, I think, for any sibling.
0: Well, that's when we really started becoming friends and being able to recognize each other's experiences as being different and separate with different challenges. And so being able to share about that, I think, built respect between us and being
2: able to listen to each other without judgment. I think that really helped as well. What would you say? I thought of another challenge, actually, probably one of the bigger ones as a sibling that I've had is the times I felt torn between Amy's needs or my perception of Amy's needs and my own life, feeling like I had to choose sometimes between being there for her and looking after myself or looking after other demands in my life. I think that's probably if I really reflect on it, that's probably the hardest part about the sibling relationship is managing that dynamic. There can be times where that feels really difficult. So how do you manage that? I think that's been a long process over the years of me getting more comfortable having my own needs and setting my own boundaries and feeling like I could say no to Amy or say I can't do that this way, but could I do it this other time? I found that really difficult to start doing, but I feel like I do more of that now. I don't know. What you would say if that is true from your experience, Amy, but I think I felt like I wasn't allowed to do that for a long time. And then now I've been able to have it feel more like a negotiation or just a collaboration of, you know, I'm I'm feeling really tired or, oh, I've got this thing with the kids or whatever. How do we work these things out?
0: One of the things that's most important to me is that Holly definitely take care of herself before she has to take care of me, because I would never want her to see me as a burden. So when she says no, she can't do something, it's not something that I hold against her, because she's a grown woman, she has her own kids, she's a mom, she's a wife, she's a psychotherapist, I mean, she's got a lot going on. But speaking of that, I wonder if when you have a disability and you are cared for by your parents, and then that eventually switches over, it's expected to fall on your sibling, it's not a fair expectation all the time. And that's one of the reasons I like the idea of the board, because it doesn't seem fair to me that you just become responsible for your sibling all at once, and then all of the things are on you because people need help with that. The board setting makes more sense to me because it spreads it out. And if you have more people, then
2: I think it's more likely that your needs are going to be able to be met without anyone getting burned out. Yes. It also allows for adding people that have different skill sets. Like I don't have all the skill sets of everything that you need in your life, right? So being able to add in someone who, you know, is strong with finances, I think some people really do that. And adding in people that are great with some of the social stuff, like having that real mix of what fits and what you need, I think allows people to enjoy the role more on the board and also meet the needs of the person better.
1: Amy, you mentioned something there that I just wanted to see if you could just touch briefly on. You talked about that feeling of, you know, I don't want Holly to see me as a burden. I've recently done some more reporting about, like, sibling caregiver needs. And this comes up a lot of the sibling who doesn't have the disability saying, like, my sibling is not a burden. We need to stop considering disabled family members as burdens to their family. But for you, as the family member who does have the disability and has been very seriously sick at various times in your life, how do you navigate those feelings of feeling like a burden? Because I'm assuming that nobody in your family thinks you are, and they would never say that. But how do you respond to that whole idea?
0: Well, I think it's something you can sense. Even with people outside of your family, you can tell when they, they see you as, um... What's the word? A responsibility, like not seeing you as a person, like seeing you as a task. So, okay, I have to get them ready to go out or I have to bathe them. I've really been able to tell over the years with PSWs who sees it as a chore and who sees me as a person. And it's such a big difference. And yes, I know none of my family members would ever say that they considered me to be a burden because they don't, but it's still hard to keep that in your head and believe it when some of the things in your life do feel like chores.
1: No, that's really fair. I know, like, so for me, like, really the biggest limitation of my life, I would say, is I can't drive. You know, for for your safety, they don't let me drive. But asking somebody for a ride, I hate that. And I've had to, like, call my parents from train stations to when we're, like, figuring out where to pick me up because, like, the train will only take me a certain part of the way. And let's say my connecting train ends up being late or something. So I've had to stay at the train station longer and feeling like I am the worst child ever because now my parents have to wait longer before they can pick me up. And I'm all stressed out about this. And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. You know, like, they're cool with it but in the back of my head there's still this idea of you must make this as simple and as painless for them because this is such a big deal that they have to do this it's a weird dynamic like i wish i could explain it better for people who don't have disabilities but it's a it's an interesting inner dialogue monologue to have to navigate
2: I have a friend who's blind and she she says that her responsibility is to ask people for what she needs and their responsibility is to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how she got to that point of just feeling kind of confident about her need because it is very difficult, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's, um, I hope I'm getting a little better at it after, you know, like three decades and a bit. But yeah, I definitely have friends in my life right now who think I'm better at it than I actually am. They're like, oh, you're really good at asking for what you need. I'm like, yeah, I actually hated it the whole time and wanted to bobb it. Holly, there's something that you said early on that I'd just like to hear your thoughts on. So for Amy and I, like we have only known life with disability. And you mentioned how you can't remember a time without your sister. So you've always had a family where disability plays a big role in it. I was just wondering for you coming from that perspective, was there a moment when you realized, oh, other people's families don't have
2: this? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think like, for me, it led to a lot of disconnect when I was growing up. And uh, I think in my teen years, in particular, where the concerns that my friends had, I just would feel sometimes so frustrated with and so disconnected from, you know, like when they're concerned about not being able to get something they wanted, or, you know, their parents made them do something. And it's just like, when you're worried your sister might die, or like these other major things are happening. It's like, how do you even connect that? And so like, often, I would just shut down, like, with my friends, I wouldn't tell them a lot about my life because I just felt like they're not going to get this. So I became a good listener and then became a psychotherapist because it was easier to listen to them and not kind of try to help them understand my experience. So there were a few times where I was able to share more with friends and that was great. But yeah, it was certainly more of a rare occurrence that they knew the whole reality of the things going on in my life, I'd say.
1: I have no other siblings have told me this. So when I tell people like, oh, yeah, like I can't see that, you know, and like this is why I get a lot of apologies. Like everyone in the world just is suddenly apologizing for my retina, um, which I kind of <laughs> think is funny because like they didn't have anything to do with it. And I've heard some people say like, oh, yeah, like when I mentioned like, oh, like my sibling has this diagnosis or whatever. People will apologize to us, too, and be like, oh, I'm really sorry. And we're like, why are you apologizing? Like, what what is going on? So do you have any advice for those of us who are the friends of siblings who may be sibling caregivers? Like, what are some things that we can do that are more helpful for you?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, at this point, I have... I have many friends in my life who just know about Amy or have met Amy and I'm trying to even think what it was like when I first talked to them and I don't remember. But now I think the things I really appreciate are that I have friends that will ask about Amy and just say, oh, like, how's everything going with Amy or any updates with her kidney issues? It's more of just a topic that's on the table, but not... Something that there needs to be, I don't know, pity about or those types of things. And I think they also know Amy as a whole person. Like they know about her other things that she does, her marathon of books. They know about her awards. So there's more of a mixed conversation about some of the different things happening in her life. So I appreciate that. Like I guess it also helps that I, I end up having friends that are therapists or in this field too. So they're often pretty good at it, right? So maybe that's not the case for everybody. That's great. And as we're
1: moving into like the final part of this- show. I was just wondering, if the two of you are incredibly open about your sibling relationship and how disability and illness has impacted it. Uh, you're probably very aware of this. Not all siblings are, right? Like some families never talk about this. What would your advice be to other siblings who may be listening and they want to have the conversation about this very obvious but unspoken part of their family and
2: they don't know where to start? It can be a really difficult topic to broach, I think it depends on a lot of factors, right? So I think recognizing that each family is unique, and each sibling relationship is unique, like Amy was talking about earlier, trying to not have it just be an expectation and a default that that's it you're you're waiting to take over care or you better do it and you better do it a certain way just having it all be open for discussion there are a lot of siblings that have had really difficult experiences also a lot of like childhood trauma from things right like it depends on what their siblings issue is but some people have experienced physical violence from their siblings or you know other things that are really really difficult and so being able to look at their needs as well and see what fits for everyone involved and look at the options of community supports and family supports and how that all works out and also not having judgment of siblings when they back away from a support role or a caregiving role when they just move across the country or just disconnect because sometimes I think that needs to happen and if that person were caregiving for the sibling I don't think it would be in the best interest of the person with the disability because they wouldn't be able to just be a positive support right because of everything else going on or everyone's well-being would would tank that's not a good outcome some siblings are also frustrated because the parents don't talk to them about care needs and they try to bring it up and the parents are like no no like this isn't your your thing to worry about but then they've said well okay but what about when my parents aren't here there's lots of different ways it plays out so i think sometimes it means getting support personally sometimes it means therapy that's where again the act group is just so great because a lot of the people that come to it we're doing one right now that i'm co-facilitating and there are siblings there adult siblings that have never talked to another sibling about their experiences ever. It's just there's this isolation, right? So even that is such a helpful thing to not feel alone. And then to be able to look at how do you have these conversations? How do you explore these things? What do you need? How do you navigate these tough topics? So I think those kinds of initiatives are really, really valuable.
0: Well, when we were talking about these questions before, I said the thing that people need to remember is that it's just like they say when you're on an airplane. If the plane is going down, you should put on your own oxygen mask first before you can put on someone else's, which I think should apply to siblings. I don't think it always is recognized that it should apply to siblings, but it definitely should. And if you are seeking a closer relationship with your sibling, then I think it's about listening and respect and understanding that you're coming from different places even though you grew up together. There's just personal differences in how you experienced your childhoods, and that's normal. And the other thing is... In the society that we live in, it's so greatly valued to be independent and not to have to ask for help. So you have the one sibling who's allowed to be independent and do their own thing, and then the sibling who has a disability who needs to ask for help all the time, which can have an effect on your mental health because you're getting this message that you should be independent, and you just can't be. It's just the way it is. But my point is that within that, yes, you have a sibling who's independent and one who has to ask for help. But you also have to have care and concern that just because you need help, it doesn't mean you have to get it from one person. You're always gonna, well, hopefully, you're going to have a special relationship with your sibling. And that will provide you with things that physical caregiving can't or help with finances can't. It's a different set of needs that a sibling can meet. And so when everything is on them, it's just easy to see how they get burnt out and how they might not want to be part of their disabled sibling's life at all.
1: So as we move into the final questions that we ask everyone on the show, What, for the two of you, have been some of the ways that your experience of disability together has made it difficult for you to connect with other people, even still today, when it sounds like you have a lot of this figured out?
2: It's been really meaningful for me as an adult more and more to be able to connect with other siblings. I found that what I described about growing up in that disconnect has kind of decreased as I go along in adulthood, probably because there's more growing awareness. I think that to me has really reduced the isolation feeling and the work that Amy and I have done in this area and talking about these things and collaborating with others has really decreased my isolation But I think, Amy, you've had a different experience, especially during the pandemic.
0: Yes, I've definitely been more isolated. I am on dialysis at the moment, so I do get out of the house three times a week to go to that. But other than that, I don't go out that much at all, except for doctor's appointments, because being immunocompromised, it's a risk. But in terms with connecting to other people, I feel like I'm still kind of waiting for other people's lives to catch up to the amount of life experience that I've had. As soon as you tell people things like, oh, I've had two transplants and they see you're in a wheelchair and then it's like sort of like this wall goes up where they can't imagine being you and how you survive that so I'm still kind of dealing with that a bit, but it has gotten better. I've been able to be more real with my friends about what's actually going on, and they have more understanding than they did when we were younger, of course. I do feel like it's getting better, and the
2: pandemic is just a lousy situation. Also, you have a really rare genetic illness, right? So it's not – there are other illnesses where a lot of people get it. So there are huge groups of people that understand that experience in some way. But when you have these really rare illnesses, it's a more unique experience. It's hard to find that, isn't it? Well,
0: it's that, but it's also – you know, when you have a physical disability and it's progressive like mine, then you're dealing with loss at a much younger age than other people. And then also, as Holly said, you know, if at home you're dealing with life and death situations and you're wondering why your friend is upset that their parents didn't buy them something it's such a huge disconnect and a difference in perspective mm-hmm. so uh finally
1: guys we're just ending it up ending up the show what what does good connection look like for you right now amy like holly's talked about the supports that she's been able to find but what about for you what, what's been a way recently that you've been able to kind of break through
0: Having those friends that have been with me for a long time and know what my life means. I mean, even if we don't live in the same country anymore, they're always there to talk to and commiserate. And also, my partner is a wonderful support. We talk every day and when he comes to visit, it's always a great time because he knows my needs and he's accepting of them and then hanging out with my family who have reasonable expectations for me. That's where I can kind of relax and be myself.
1: Thanks so much for coming on. I have really, really appreciated this.
0: Thank you so much for having us, Megan. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you.
1: Connecting Disability is a production of AMI Audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore, with technical production by Jacob Szymanski. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio. Special thanks to our guests, Holly and Amy Mathers, and to Siblings Canada for their help in researching this episode. I could give a lot of shout-outs to a lot of people right now, including my own siblings. Uh, But I just wanted to especially acknowledge uh, my friends, the LeBlanc family, for the ways that you've helped me understand disability and how it relates to families, and also for introducing me to electric card shufflers. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll connect next time.